Well, good morning. Good morning, Grace Toronto. I uh, love to hear the chatter. I'd ask that you bring your conversations to a close this morning as we uh, go into a time of the reading and preaching of, of, uh, of God's word. Uh, today is also a special day. I was informed just before the service. Um, it's Paul Sampson's birthday this morning. Um, Paul is one of our elders. He is the husband to Gwen Sampson, who you just saw. Paul, I think you're turning, what was it, 35 this morning? So congrats. It's a big, it's a big number. Um, but, uh, but it, you know, it actually, it actually kind of flows well into, into our topic this morning because we, uh, if you haven't been here with us, uh, we have been going through a series, uh, going through the book of 1 John. And 1 John has been, um, 1 John is written to a, a church that is facing uh, division, a church that is facing persecution. There had been a split. Uh, a number of people had left. And those who remained were facing some serious questions about their faith and about their identity as Christians. And if you ever talk to someone uh, like Paul Sampson, who has walked with the Lord for a number of years, you will probably find that he sounds kind of like John, because in a sense, First John so far has been uh, all about knowing God. And if you were to ask Paul Sampson, I think he would say that's probably the only thing that matters really in life is knowing God. Everything else will disappoint you, uh, but knowing God is what matters. And so uh, this morning, that's, that's what our passage is really about. It's about um, how do we know that we know God? And so to read uh, God's word for us this morning, I want to invite Melissa up. First John chapter 2 verses 29 to chapter 3 verses 1 to 10. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has, yet been, has not yet been appeared. But we know that when he appears, he shall be like him. Because we, shall be, because we shall see him as he is, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sin, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Melissa. Some years ago, my faith and about my background, and one question arose to which I didn't have a good answer for. And the question was simply, at what point in my life had I been born again? Now, I'd heard the term being born again before. Um, I grew up with Christian parents. I grew up in a Christian home. I grew up going to church almost every Sunday of my childhood. I was pretty sure that I was a Christian. But this question of being born again, this idea of um, supernatural birth, I thought, well, that was for, for perhaps some other people who were outside of the faith. And I had never really considered it to be applicable to me. 
Um, the first point is the need for righteousness. Uh, the second point is the seed of God. And the third point is that we are freed to behold. The need for righteousness, the seed of God, and freed to behold. Up until this point of the letter, John has been giving us a lot of statements about how we can know God. He talks about sound doctrine. He talks about uh, character change. He talks about discipline, doing right. But at this point in the letter, he brings forth a, a point about why it is that we can know God. He says in verse 29 that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Now, righteousness in the biblical sense uh, essentially means doing right by others. It means living in right standing to God and to your fellow humans. And it's interesting that the way John writes this in verse 29, he says, everyone who practices righteousness, everyone who... I think what John is trying to do is he wants his audience to think about what actually is true righteousness. Doing right as the Bible teaches, which I think is only possible by a human who has been born again. John's wording actually provides a corrective to this idea that everyone, regardless of their religion or absence of religion, is essentially good, is essentially able to do good, to do right. Because what John is saying here is actually no. The only people who can actually do real good, real righteousness, these people are followers of Jesus who have experienced the new life, who have experienced being born again, being born of God, as he calls it in this letter, being born of heaven. Now, some of you here are probably thinking, well, uh, that's simply not true. There's lots of good people out there. There's lots of people who I know who aren't Christians, who, uh, people who I work with, people who I see on the news, people in my family. So special when it comes to real righteousness. So I want to explore that for, uh, for a moment. Let's consider Jesus' teachings on what it means to be righteous. And where would we go if we wanted Jesus' teachings on righteousness? Well, I think... If you want a nice summary of Jesus' teaching, you go to the Sermon on the Mount. And most people who have read the Sermon on the Mount would say, this is, this is awesome. Look what, it says, look what it says about forgiveness. Look what it says about turning the other cheek. Look what it says about giving generously to the poor. Anyone who's read the Sermon on the Mount with an ounce of humanity says, yeah, this is, this is good stuff. This is, this is how we would live. This is how we should live. If only my roommate would live like this. If only my siblings would live like this. Uh, it's, it's an amazing teaching. It's, it's an incredible teaching. But see, here's the thing with the Sermon on the Mount, is that if you really understand what it demands of you, if you really understand the level of righteousness that it demands of you, you realize very quickly it is humanly impossible to live this way without some kind of supernatural transformation. Let me explain what I mean. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is basically saying, be like me. Because when you see real righteousness, you're looking at Jesus. And what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount is he demonstrates that real righteousness requires a complete union of heart and will. They have to work in sync with one another. What do I mean by that? Jesus says, when you give to the poor, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Well, what does that mean? There should be no self-congratulation. There should be not a hint of superiority when giving to the poor, when looking at the poor. 
You see the level of righteousness here. The motives of the heart have to be pure, no superiority, looking at the poor, only compassion and generosity, resulting in the will to do the right thing, giving to the poor. Another example, Jesus says, don't murder, fair. Takes it one step further. He says, don't be angry. It's a little bit harder. And then he says, don't say raka, or you fool, you nobody, to your brother. In other words, don't even harbor a hint of resentment towards your brother. Don't be indifferent to your fellow human beings. You see the complete union here of heart and will. To do this, your motives have to be filled with grace and humility and love. There can't be a hint of bitterness or selfishness. I don't know anyone that can do this without some kind of supernatural transformation. I definitely cannot do this. So anyone who can do right according to Jesus or even begin to do right, even move in that direction, they have to be born again. Um, and here's how you know you're, you're moving in that direction. Here's how you know that, that you're, you're born again. Real righteousness always goes against your natural temperament. It goes against your natural inclinations because here's what happens. I think sometimes uh, we see in the world there's people who are um, naturally just really, really kind or really, really generous or really, really selfless. And as Christians, we compare ourselves to them and go, oh, that person's way more righteous than I am. And in some ways, that's, that's true. They, they are outwardly perhaps more righteous. But remember, we're not talking about that. We're talking about a supernatural righteousness. We're talking about a righteousness that gives you things that you could never get on your own efforts. So if your natural temperament is to be you know, a little bit irritable, you get compassionate. If you're naturally impatient, you get patience. If you're greedy, you get generosity. See, real righteousness, this union of heart and will, so that what flows, what it, what's in your heart flows naturally out. So you're never a hypocrite because you're just doing right because that's where your heart is. You've been transformed. You've been born again. And Paul understands this. Paul, in Romans chapter three, he's talking about, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. Being one or the other doesn't make you any more righteous than the other. He says this, this is Romans three chapter nine, or sorry, Romans chapter three, verse nine. He says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. Not one does good. Not even one. See, Paul understands that no one on their own faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. In other words, you must be born again. You must have faith in Christ which transforms your heart from the heart of stone to the heart of flesh. That's in Ezekiel. From the heart that is uncircumcised to the heart that is circumcised. That's Moses in Deuteronomy. The heart that knows what is good as defined by God and the will to do that good. Everyone. So it's impossible to be righteous without being a born again. And likewise, doing right, real righteousness, is a result of being born again, or being born of God, as John says. That means that there's only one kind of Christian in the world, and that's the Christian who is born again. Uh, see, if, if you were like me, perhaps, and you, you uh, grew up going to church, and um, you know, I thought, 
yeah, I'm a pretty good person. I'm, I'm pretty moral. I think I follow Jesus pretty well. Um, you know, I don't think I need this supernatural birth. If you feel that way, you're missing the point. See, if you don't feel the need to be born again, then clearly you aren't. Because if you've come to Jesus and you've recognized the need to be born again, you've seen and you've tasted the goodness and the glory of God, you've been made aware of your inability to do the right thing. You're holding up your life to the Sermon on the Mount and you're saying, I can't do this. I want to do this. I want to do the Sermon on the Mount. I want to live this way, but I can't do it. Then you're like the Apostle Paul who says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. Have you ever felt that way, Christian? Have you ever felt that tension? It's a good thing to feel that tension. Because guess what, it's already happening. You're being born again. Because you're not capable of seeing your need to be born again, unless God is already opening your eyes for the work that he's doing in you. See, when you're born from God, John says God's seed is in you. God's seed is kind of like the spiritual DNA of God, if you will. It's been planted in you. And what happens is, when you're born of God, you start to grow in the family likeness of God in all righteousness. Uh, as many of you know, uh, Helen and I became parents a few months ago, and um, a funny thing happens when you have a baby. Everyone starts coming up to you, and they just start telling you which parts of your baby resemble which parent. And you don't have to ask them to do it, they just, they just tell you, right? Oh, she's so cute. Oh, she's got Helen's eyes. Oh, she's so adorable. Oh, she looks exactly like Helen. And I'm like, okay, she's got some of my DNA as well, I think. Um, no, it's good. It's good, that, it's good that she looks like Helen. Um, see, children, as they grow, as babies grow, they start to resemble the, fa- the family likeness. They start to resemble their parents because their parents' DNA is in them. And so it is with the children of God. If you're born of God, if you have his spiritual DNA in you, you will start to grow in his likeness. Everyone who does what is right is born of God. That also means that everyone born of God does what is right. Now, a word to the Christian here, because this is something that I think many of us struggle with. This is something that I struggle with. Uh, You may doubt your status as a child of God at times. You may be struggling with with the same sins. You might be feeling like, like Paul, you want to do the right thing, but you just keep doing the wrong thing. You feel like you're the opposite of righteous. Uh, you wonder, you wonder if you've actually really, truly been born again. Uh, let me encourage you, because the fact that you're aware, the fact that you're worrying about your sin, the fact that you're grieving it, the fact that you're wondering if you've actually been born again, the only people who do that are people who've been born again. The capability to even do that is evidence of God at work in you. So if you find yourself struggling, you find yourself in a cycle of sin and a pattern of sin, and you say, "Ah, I can't change, I can't do it, 
John is saying, you are settling for too little. You're settling. He's like, do you know what's inside you? John is saying, God's seed is in you. Um, Helen and I, we also love to garden, and um, we have grown a number of different vegetables and plants, uh, mostly in my parents' backyard. Um, And one of the most basic things about gardening, and I feel almost silly to say this, is if you start with a tomato seed, what do you get? Tomatoes. 100% of the time, you'll get tomatoes. Um, You know what's in a cucumber seed? Cucumbers. You know what's in a pepper seed? Peppers. You know what's in a God seed? The glory of God. His pure, unfiltered, holy, glorious presence. And that can't tolerate sin. And that's inside you. Listen, it will burn away the sin in you. It is acidic. It'll, it'll eat its way through it if with enough time. So don't settle and don't say, I can't change. You can change anything. Look what's in you, John is saying. The seed of God is in you. You're born of God. This is what John says. This is what Jesus says. But here's the thing. Here's the hard part of this passage. Not everyone is a child of God, according to John. See, in the Bible, John outlines in our passage that there are two types of people. There are two types of DNA, if you will. You either have the DNA of God in you through Jesus Christ, or you have the DNA of the devil. And no one was clearer about this than Jesus. Uh, Jesus, in his day, he looked at uh, his own people, he looked at the religious elites, and he said, you are not the children of God. In fact, you're children of the devil, and I actually see his resemblance in you. This is um, in John chapter 8. And so if you want to understand, because you're thinking, okay, you know, what, like, are people walking around with like, Satan's DNA? What does that mean? So if you want to understand what, what the essential DNA of Satan is, what the essential DNA of the devil is, uh, you can go back into your Old Testament. You can kind of piece it together. It's, it's a very cryptic story. It's kind of in the background. But essentially... Essentially what it is, is I will ascend. I will grasp iniquity with God. I will grasp equality, sorry, with God. I will rule. This is in Isaiah chapter 14. I will ascend. I will grasp equality. I will rule. I will be God. And you can contrast that with Jesus' character as described in Philippians 2. I will descend. I will not grasp equality with God. I will serve. See, the DNA of the darkness is I am my own person. And I don't want anyone to tell me what to do. And so if you live your life this way, even in, even in small amounts, I mean, you can, you can craft your life living this way and you can still be a very pleasant person on the outside. Um, there, are, there are definitely ways you can do that. Uh, here's the thing. People with the same attitude can also become monsters. And the difference between the two is superficial. Because here's the thing. Uh, What's inside of you eventually comes out. You can uh, outwardly look pleasant and have foul DNA inside you. And you can outwardly look foul and you can have God's DNA in you. Which one matters? See, Whatever's inside you is eventually going to come out given enough time. And so if you have the seed of God in you, you will bear godly fruit. Right? Plant a tomato seed, you're going to get tomatoes. 
This is why John says that the one who has the seed of God in him cannot continue in the practice of sinning. Now, John isn't saying that a Christian never sins. How do I know this? Because just a couple chapters ago, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, he says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So clearly, John is not talking about whether or not you have sin or have sinned. He's talking about the practice. He's talking about the ongoing pattern in your life. It's about the one who keeps on sinning. It's about the one who makes a practice of sinning that hasn't known God. And the one who is born of God cannot do this. Um, church, I, I, would, I, I would encourage you, look back on your life. If you, if you recall yourself a Christian, look back on your life five years ago, two years ago, one year ago. Do you see a change? What's the pattern of your life? Um, encourage each other in this. Share with each other the changes that you've seen. And the changes might be small, right? Um, growing in godliness, growing in righteousness, it's, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. But isn't it wonderful? Isn't it wonderful that when God comes into our lives, when we are born again, it's the seed of God. It's not the tsunami wave of God. In other words, when you become Christian, when you first are born again, it doesn't feel all that different right away. Hmm? If you plant a seed and look at it two minutes later, it doesn't look all that different. But give it time, enough time, it will grow. It will bear fruit. It, it can't not bear fruit. Um, you know, trees don't stop growing in the winter. They might look dead. They might look dormant. They're still growing. You might feel like right now you're a tree in winter. You might be looking at your life and saying, I don't, I don't see it. I don't see any leaves. I don't see any fruit. But you're still growing. You're still putting rings on, even if you don't feel it. So we've talked about the need to be righteous. We've talked about the seed of God. And now finally, we're going to talk about what it means to be freed to behold. Uh, back to my story. I was, I would say, looking back, um, I was highly religious before I was born again. There may be some of you here this morning who are religious, but you're not, you're not born again. You might go to church, you might make changes in your life for the better out of sheer willpower. You might outwardly do righteous things. You might even start coming to church, and you might see um, there are certain things that people do in church that, uh, that get pats on the back. And you might be like, okay, I'll try to do those things. And you might start to look down on those who, who don't do those things. That's not what being born again is. That's not what being a Christian is. John, in his gospel account, records a fascinating story of Jesus meeting um, a man named Nicodemus, who Jesus says was uh, the teacher in Israel. In other words, in Jesus' estimation, this was, this was the most religious man, perhaps, in all of Israel. He was the teacher, highly religious, knew his Bible back and forth. Yet Jesus' conversation with him shakes him to the core because he says to Nicodemus, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. You can't see it. 
See, Nicodemus, in all his religiosity, in all his knowledge, in all his theology, he cannot see. And Jesus, of course, is not talking about a physical rebirth, and neither is Nicodemus when he says, surely a man can't re-enter his mother's womb. Uh, Nicodemus is saying, I can't, I can't see. I can't start over. But Jesus is talking about a spiritual rebirth, a birth that comes from heaven, which opens your eyes to the reality, the real reality of the kingdom of God, to see what's actually true. See, Nicodemus is still living in the matrix, and Jesus is offering him the red pill. He's saying, this is what you need to see. You can't see in your current state. And so it's no wonder that in the climax of our passage this morning, and perhaps the climax of the entire book of 1 John, John says in verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 1, he says, see. In the King James, it says, behold, look, look. Look upon the love that the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. I know how sinful I can be. How could God love a person like me? Amazement, wonderment. And if you don't feel that, and if you feel like perhaps you're the kind of person who, or as Sinclair Ferguson says of this passage, loose us, or set us free from the influence of the devil. See, until you behold, until you gaze in amazement that God would come down in human form, that he would die for the sins of you and I, that he would free us from our bondage and slavery to sin, you and I who are unworthy, utterly unworthy to be loved by God, let alone invited into his family to become his children. And you behold and you let that truth overwhelm you. This is what it means to be born again. A very good friend of mine um, who lives out in in Vancouver, in the last six months uh, had had their life uh, upended completely. Uh, let me tell you what happened. The, the house which uh, they live in with their three adolescent children, they, they lived there um, over, for over a decade, uh, was unexpectedly sold, so they were forced to move. Uh, they had to leave behind neighbors who had become like family to them. They had to leave behind their childhood home and all the memories that come with it. They had to move most of their possessions to a temporary storage unit uh, while they looked for an Airbnb uh, to live in while uh, sending off applications for uh, rental. Um, And we know how ridiculous the rental market is in Canada. Um, As they searched for a house, um, her husband was laid off of work. And so they weren't sure how they were going to pay for that Airbnb as they sent off application and application. Then in December, my friend was diagnosed with cancer. My friends, this morning, most of us here, we probably have a pretty good life right now. But things can change very quickly. And if we start to behold the good things in our life more than we are beholding the love of God, if we start to behold our health, our social status, our possessions, we might start to think that these good things in our life are evidence that God loves us. And we couldn't be more wrong. 
because that would mean that those who are not experiencing the good life as we know it, those who are suffering and struggling, well, it would mean that God doesn't love them. And what a terrible thing that would be if that were true. Um, my, my friend and her family, they eventually did find a, a suitable house to rent. Her husband is back at work. She had surgery, and as far as the doctors can tell, uh, for now, there's no remaining cancer. These things are miracles, my friends. But that's not the most incredible thing about this friend of mine. What is incredible is as I watch them walk through a seemingly impossible situation, what did I see in them? Well, I'll tell you what I didn't see. I didn't see any resentment towards God. I didn't see any questioning of his love. I didn't see any sense of superiority, thinking that God owes them a good life. No, what I saw was faith and trust and love for God. That just as he had always been with them and had always anything that life throws at you. Because no matter what it is, no matter what you're going through, it can't change the fact that you are loved and you are a child of the high king of heaven. As Paul would say it, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord? Or as John simply puts it, and so we are. So look at the cross of Christ. Behold the love of God. But also look ahead and behold our glorious future. John says, abide in him. This is in verse 28, which was, I think was supposed to be part of the passage. Abide in him that we'd be confident and unashamed before, uh, before him at his coming. And this is what we've just already discussed, this, this righteousness that we have in Jesus Christ, that we can be Uh, we can go to God and be unashamed before him. But look in verse two, he says, now we are children of God. What we will be has not yet been made known, but we know when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. This, my friends, is our glorious future that we can only glimpse briefly now. Think of a baby in the womb. The entire nine months of the pregnancy is for what? To prepare this baby, this child, for life outside the womb, for life in the real world. But if you were to uh, theoretically ask the baby, what do you know of the world outside that you're being prepared for? What do you know about the world that you're about to live in? What would it know? It would know nearly nothing. It wouldn't even know uh, what light is. It wouldn't know the beauty of a sunset or the cool touch of a sea breeze. It wouldn't know the sweetness or tenderness of being loved by another. It wouldn't know the juicy and crispy perfection of fried chicken. It doesn't know anything. It wouldn't even have categories for these things. But perhaps it would know the faint whisper of mom or dad as they converse and as they share their already established love for this child and for how they can't wait to see them face to face. Friends, this is our destiny. In the new creation, in the new heavens and earth, it will be beyond any categories that we have for in this life. Whatever goodness and beauty and joy we experience will absolutely pale in comparison to what we will see and to what we will be 
when we gaze upon the face of Jesus in all glory and majesty. And so from now until that day, we hope in him. We hope in him. We let the seed of God do its work, eating away at our sin, making us pure just as he is pure. As John says, this is eternal life, that we may know the Father. Know the Father, not know of the Father. Know the Father, the only true God and Jesus Christ, the one whom you have sent. This is what you have if you're a Christian and you've been born again. This is what God graciously offers to you if you have not yet come to faith in Jesus. Friends, we only live once, but we can be born again. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that we can call you Father. We thank you that we can know you. Thank you for the love that you have lavished upon us, as John says. Love that is nothing that we could be worthy of, yet you have given it to us in your son, Jesus. God, we pray, Lord, that you would help us as a church to be people who would do right by others, but not just to do it outwardly, but to actually experience the transformation, the transformation of our hearts and our wills to be aligned with you. And we can only do this through the the work and power of the Holy Spirit in us. So God, we pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, the seed of God. We pray that it would grow and that we would grow in a holiness and purity. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Would you rise for our song of reflection?